Now, I told you that one of the reasons that the book of Genesis is so important is because it answers the big picture questions of life. Everybody wants those big picture questions answered. They, they want to know how to make sense of life. And so, wait, what are some of the big picture questions? Is there a God? What is God like? Where did we come from? Who are we? Why are we here? And, and those questions I just mentioned are answered in the book of Genesis. We've been walking through Genesis and answering those big picture questions. And once you have those big picture questions answered, life begins to make sense. And you understand why you're here and you understand what you're supposed to be doing, and you understand what your values ought to be, you understand what is true and what is not true, because the Bible tells you all of that. And so we've been answering those questions. But there are two more big picture questions that I want us to answer from Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 is a very important chapter in the Bible. If you don't understand Genesis chapter 3, or if you don't know Genesis chapter 3, you won't understand vast portions of Scripture. And you really won't understand... Uh, what's going on in your own life and what your greatest need is. So what are the two big picture questions that we're going to ask and then answer from Genesis 9? Number one, what went wrong? What went wrong? I don't have to convince you that something has gone horribly wrong in humanity. Wars, evil, I mean, you just name it. I don't have to convince you that something has gone wrong. Something's gone wrong in our own lives. We, we know that we're broken. Something's not right. We know that we struggle, that we're not perfect, that, that there's some, some shortcomings in our own life. What, what went wrong? Why, why the trouble? Why the brokenness? Why the, why the evil in the world? What went wrong? And the second question we're going to answer is this. How do we fix it? How do we fix it? So Genesis 3 answers those two, those two questions. What went wrong? How do we fix it? So, you ready to do it? All right, open to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Got some really good stuff. I'm excited about teaching this tonight, so just hang on, all right? Genesis chapter 3. First question, well, let's do some context first. Let's do a little bit of context to understand Genesis chapter 3. And to establish the context, we need to go back to chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. So, go back with me. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. This after the Lord uh, created Adam. And it says there, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every, everybody say every, every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now let's, let's do the math. How many, how many trees were Adam and Eve not allowed to eat from? One, just one, just one tree. Every other tree they were allowed to eat from. And God gave them this commandment. Now, here's a question that thinking people ought to have. Why did God do that? I mean, why did God put this tree that they're not allowed to eat from and say, don't eat from it? I mean, why was this even here? I mean, somebody say, that's a stumbling block. I mean, God put it right there in front of him. It was, it was a temptation in and of itself. But that is not the case at all. Look in your notes. God gave Adam and Eve sovereign boundaries so that they would come to know good or evil by experience. God gave Adam and Eve sovereign boundaries so they would come to know good and evil, uh, good or evil by experience. It's called the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So when they were not eating from the tree, they were experiencing good. 
obedience, right? And if they would, or if they did eat from the tree, spoiler alert, they did. If they did eat from the tree, they would experience evil, sin, right? And and this tree was there to help them experience good or uh, to allow them, if they chose, to experience evil. Think about it like this. Every time they, Adam and Eve, passed the tree and did not eat its fruit, they were demonstrating their love for God and trust in God. Do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus said in John 14, 15, he said, If you love me, keep my commandments. So, how do you express your love for Jesus? Obey him, right? It's one thing to say, oh, how I love Jesus. It's another thing to obey him and prove you love him. Correct? That's how you, that's how you demonstrate your love for Jesus, by obedience. So this tree was here to give them an opportunity to express their love for God by obeying him, by not eating from it. Every time they walked by and said, I'm not going to eat it, God said no. They were demonstrating to God, I love you, God. That's what was happening. And... Every time they did not eat from the tree, they were expressing that they trusted God. That God gave them this commandment for whatever reason. He knows what's best. And every time we obey him, we're we're trusting that God knows what's best for our lives. Correct? That's what obedience is. And so this tree being here right in the middle of the Garden of Eden was an opportunity for Adam and Eve to demonstrate their love and their trust for God. So that's the context. You have this great, big, beautiful, lush fruitful garden but there's how many trees they could not eat from one tree now let's look at see what happens in chapter three chapter three now i want to walk through this as we answer the question what went wrong under a couple of of different headings first of all i want us to think about satan's strategy satan's strategy there in verse 1 it says, The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now who is this serpent? Well, over in uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 9, chapter 20, verse 2, the, the serpent is called Satan, our enemy. The, the enemy of God, the enemy of God's people. The one who the Bible says is seeking to destroy us like a roaring lion. Isn't that what the Bible says? That Satan is a roaring lion seeking those whom he can devour. Jesus said that, that the thief, Satan, comes to steal and kill and destroy. That's what he's all about. He's a destroyer. He hates you. Hates your kids. Hates your grandkids. Hates your marriage. Hates your church. Hates your pastor. Hates your church staff. He, he hates us. And he is all about destroying us. He is bent on ruining us. That's, that's who Satan is. And this is the serpent that comes into the garden. It says, The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, we need to pay special attention to what Satan does here. Because listen to what the Bible says over in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. The Bible says, the desire is that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So if you're not ignorant of Satan's strategies and schemes, you won't be outwitted by him. But if you are ignorant of what Satan does and how Satan does things, then you might be outwitted by him. So we need to study chapter 3, because chapter 3 is a pattern or a template for how Satan works in, in humanity and in our lives. 
how he comes against us. So what does Satan do here? How does Satan come against Adam and Eve? Uh, Satan's strategy. Well, Satan's strategy was to sow seeds of doubt. Sow seeds of doubt. He wanted Eve to doubt three things. Ready? He wanted Eve, first of all, to doubt, then distort God's word. In verse 1, he said to the woman, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? What's he doing there? He's planting seeds of doubt. Now, God clearly said, don't eat from that tree. And, and Satan comes along and says, did God really say that? But then he kind of twists things, that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He kind of adds on to what God had said. He takes it from just this one tree to, did God say you couldn't eat from, from, from any tree? What he's doing, he's distorting God's word, and he's trying to get Eve to doubt the veracity, to doubt the truthfulness of what God has said, God's word. Now, I want you to know that Satan has been doing that for thousands of years, and he's still doing it today. Satan desperately wants folks to doubt God's word, to, to, to come to a place where they, they do not have confidence in the truthfulness of the Bible. Because if he can get you to build your life on something other than the Bible, you're going to sink. Jesus said, if you try to build your life on sinking sand, when the floods come, when the rains come, when the winds come, you will be washed away by life. But if you build your house, if you build your life upon the rock, the teachings of the Lord, if you build your house upon truth, when the floods come, when the rains come, when the winds come, when life happens, and life always happens, you will be able to withstand those storms because your life is grounded in truth. And so Satan has a lot at stake in convincing you that God's word is not true. And he's very good at it. Most places of higher learning, higher education, are places that deny the truth of God's word. Even places that are seminaries and Bible colleges deny the truthfulness of God's word. Now there are some good seminaries out there. There are some good Bible colleges out there, but there are many who are under the banner of teaching the Bible that are, that are teaching that the Bible is not fully reliable. It is not truth with no mixture of error. They're teaching that. And so we've got to make some decisions. Is the Bible the Word of God? Is the Bible truth with no mixture of error? I believe the answer to that question is yes, absolutely. The Bible has proven itself over and over and over again. Historical evidence, archaeological evidence, fulfilled prophecies. And we could go on and on and on at how the Bible has withstood the attacks and the test of time. But Satan wants to plant that doubt in your mind to say, maybe this shouldn't be your authority. Maybe it's not really, maybe it's just a, an old dusty history book that has no relevance to your life. Or, or perhaps it's just, you know, some, some religious book that's, you know, just like other religious books out there. Like the Bhagavad Gita in Hinduism, or the Quran in, in Islam, or, uh, you know, other, the Upanishads in Hinduism. Or it's just like another, it's just another religious book. It's not really special, it's not really set apart. And Satan wants you to believe that. Because if he can get you to believe that, you'll start building your life on falsehood and not on truth, and you're headed for destruction. So that's what he does. He, he tries to get Eve to doubt and distort, distort God's word. And it's already working. Look what Eve says there in verse 2. 
The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now if you go back to chapter 2, God never said you couldn't touch it. Never said that. What we have of God's command is you should not eat from that tree. But now, you know, Eve is doubting the truthfulness of God's word and, and Satan distorted what God said and now she's adding on to what God said. And you see what's happening here? It's just a big mess. They're walking away. She's walking away being led by Satan from the simple plain truth of what God had said. And Satan is having a field day here. He's causing her to doubt and distort God's word. There's a second thing that Satan wanted Eve to doubt. He wanted Eve to doubt sin's consequences. Look what the Bible says there in verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Now that's direct contradiction to what God had said. He said, If you eat from it, you will die, right? And and Satan says, there, there's no consequences. I mean, if that's what you want to do, go for it. You'll get away with it, or it's not that big of a deal. Go for it. There, there are no consequences for your behavior. And Satan is still selling that same old lie to people today. If it's what you want to do, go for it. And you can get away with it, or you can rise above the consequences, and you can, you can enjoy what you want to do with no repercussions. Go and be free. Do what you want to do. That's what Satan is trying to get people to buy into, and it is a lie. When you go against what the Creator says, there are always consequences. Right? God is a God of love and mercy and grace and kindness and patience. But God is also a God of holiness. And one day God will judge humanity based upon what they've done with Jesus Christ. If, if, if people have embraced Christ as the Lord and Savior, they get eternity in heaven. If they have rejected Christ, they will spend eternity in that awful place called hell. There are consequences for disregarding what God says. There are consequences here in this life. When we go against God's design for our lives, when we go against what the Creator says about how we should live, we will always experience consequences. Don't believe that lie, that there are no consequences. I had a good friend who's a youth minister, and he told me a story about a a young man in his youth group coming to him and kind of confessing some sins, some things he'd been doing that were wrong. And so my youth minister friend talked to him about God's grace and God's forgiveness and how God will clean your heart up and just really good stuff, good sound advice. But then he said this to this youth. He said, now let's pray that God will help you through the consequences. Does God forgive? Yes, absolutely. Are there still consequences for bad decisions? Yeah. But is God gracious enough to help you even through those? Yeah. And build you through those consequences and, 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 and sharpen your character through that? Yes. But there are consequences. But Satan lied. He wanted Eve to doubt that there was going to be judgment. Third, Satan wanted Eve to doubt God's goodness. Look in verse 5. Verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, eat of it your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So here's what Satan's saying. God's trying to hold back something good from you. What's Satan doing there? Satan is calling into question God's character, right? 
that God has some, you know, God has this devious character that's trying to withhold something good from Adam and Eve. And that's not the case at all. But Satan is twisting things and trying to cause her to, to doubt God's character, God's goodness. He's saying here, God's not good. You do what you want to do. Don't listen to God. He's trying to steal your fun. And a lot of people, you know, paint this picture of God that God is this, you know, cosmic killjoy in the sky. And, and he's there. He exists simply to take away our fun. You ever heard somebody say that before? God's just trying to take away anything fun from anybody that anything, anybody wants to do. That could not be further from the truth. There is nothing more thrilling, more, more full of joy, more meaningful, more full of purpose than following Jesus. And that's where life is. Jesus said, I've came that you might have abundant life. But Satan wants to lie and say, following Jesus is boring. Following Jesus, you're going to have to, you're going to, have to give, away, give up a lot of stuff. And, and you, know, you know, don't listen to all that. Just, just you do what you want to do. Satan was causing Eve to doubt God's goodness. And he's still at it today. Now, I want you to think about this um, I want you to think about this story of chapter 3 of Genesis in two ways. Number one, I want you to think of it from a big picture perspective. Okay? You can sum up the, the story of the Bible in four words. Write this down. This is in your notes. Ready? Here are the four words. I don't think it's in your notes. Creation. Fall. Reading about the fall right now in chapter 3. And then starting in chapter 3 and the remainder of the Bible is about redemption. And eternity. Creation, fall, redemption, eternity. That's what the Bible's about. Okay? So this, this chapter here is one of those four things. Pretty important chapter. This explains the fall. So think about it in that context. This explains these big picture questions. But we also need to think about this in a, in a, um, in a studious manner. We need to learn from this story in our individual lives. We need to learn how we stand against Satan's schemes. So look at this quote I've given you from Alan Ross. Alan Ross. He writes, A thorough knowledge of the Word of God and an unwavering trust in the goodness of God are absolutely essential for spiritual victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. So if you want to avoid giving in to temptation like Eve did and like Adam did, if you want to avoid that, you know how you do it? You need to know God's word so Satan can't distort and twist and deceive and cause you to doubt, right? And you need to know God. You need to have unfailing confidence in the character of God, knowing that God is good. So what he says is good. His commandments are good. His expectations are good. His principles are good. It's all good because God is good. And Satan can't lead you down that road of doubting God's goodness, so that's how you stand against Satan's scheme. So we've seen Satan's strategy. Secondly, I want you to see sin's destruction. What went wrong? Satan's strategy, sin's destruction. I want you to see three things about sin in this passage. First of all, I want you to see the allure of sin. The allure of sin. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. So, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. See what's happening here? Eve is being enticed. She's being lured. She's looking at that tree a, from a totally different perspective. 
Now, all this time, I just walked by, and God told me not to eat it, eat from it, so I didn't eat from it. But now, you know, this serpent's talking to me, and boy, it's just really desirable. It just looks like it might be good and, and something I want to have. She's being lured. She's being enticed. Satan is, is working his, his evil in her life. Here's what Eve's thought process must have been like. Let me just walk through this very quickly. And by the way, a lot of people, maybe even in this room tonight, are dealing with these same things, these same thought processes. Number one, uh, that, that tree, it's better than what's permitted. Because remember, how many trees were off limits? One. So Eve could have said, you know, I've got all these other trees to eat from. But now she's thinking, that tree, boy, I, I think it's going to be better than all these other trees. So I'm going to try that one out. And see, a, a lot of people think when they're, when they're tempted to do something wrong, when they're tempted to sin and, and rebel against the Creator, they're thinking, you know, what I want to do must be better than what God tells me about how to live my life. It's better than what God says. I, I think what I want is, is, is what's better for me. Another thing in her thought process was this. I can get away with it. She had found that deception that there are no consequences. She felt that deception. It will make me happy. It says she desired it. Look what it says there in verse 6. It was a delight to the eyes. It will make me happy. And listen to me. A lot of people walk down the pathway to destruction because they think that they're going to be happy when they get to the end of that pathway. And sin, listen, sin never delivers happiness. There may be a moment of, of enjoyment, but it never delivers happiness. As a matter of fact, you've heard preachers say, sin will take you farther than you want to go, it'll keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will always, always, always cost you more than you want to pay. But I think in Eve's thought process, she's thinking, that will make me happy. If I could just eat that fruit, boy, I'll be really happy then. And she was pursuing her happiness instead of biblical holiness. And I've heard people, listen to me, I've heard people make some really bad life decisions because they said this, I just want to be happy. And sin never delivers, never. It's a lure that hooks and captures and destroys. I think another part of her thought process was something like this. I, I, I need to get someone else involved with me. <laughs> if I'm going to do it, any other humans around? Adam needs to do it with me. How many of you know that misery loves company, right? And uh, it, it, it's always affirming when you want to do something wrong, if you can get someone to do it with you, right? Get someone else to get involved with you. The allure of sin. But think for a minute about the act of sin. The act of sin. Look what happens there in verse 6. You want to say, wait, what's wrong with the world today? Verse 6 explains. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that was the delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Disobedience. She disobeyed God's commandment. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, I want you to notice something interesting in this passage. Eve had gone through a process of being deceived by Satan, right? Adam did not. It, it, it sounds like Adam walks up, she says, here, eat this. He says, okay. No deception, no alluring, no 
twisting God's word. She said, here, eat this. And Adam, he, he takes a bite. Right? That's why the Bible places the responsibility for the situation on Adam's shoulders. Adam should have known better. Adam should have led better. Adam should have protected Eve better. And let me show you that the Bible places this squarely on Adam. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. This explains it. New Testament, 1 Timothy Verse 13, Adam 2, verse 13. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. 1 Timothy 2, Adam's not a book. 1 Timothy 2, verse 13. The Bible says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So it's clear here that Eve went through a process of being deceived by the serpent. Then she ate. Adam wasn't deceived. He knew right and wrong. He walked up. She handed him the fruit. He took a big old bite. See the difference there? Now, keep that in mind and turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Verse 12. Romans chapter 5 verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, no mention of Eve here. Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Look in verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Notice here that the fall is placed squarely on the shoulders of Adam. Everybody see that? He didn't have to be deceived. He knew better, but he just took the fruit and ate it without thinking. And so we see here sin's act. This is what has caused everything to go terribly wrong. More about that in just a moment. Let's talk about the aftermath of sin. What happened next? What were the consequences of their sin in Genesis chapter 3? The first one is shame. Shame. Look in verse 7 of chapter 3. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, at the end of chapter 2, it says they were both naked and were not ashamed. In other words, they were living in a, a time of innocence. They, they had not experienced evil. Remember the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? They had experienced good by not eating. Now they experienced evil and their innocence was gone and they knew something was different and it plays out in their, their wanting to physically cover themselves. They're, you know what they're feeling there? They're feeling shame. But guess what? Outer coverings can't deal with inner shame. That's important to remember. And they, they put these, these fig leaves on and they are filled with shame because of their disobedience. They had, taken, they had taken the bite of that fruit God told them not to eat. They had taken the lure of Satan, the lure of the tempter, and they were caught. And they experienced shame. There's a lot of reasons I hate sin. But one of the reasons I just hate sin is the shame that Satan loves to wield in people's lives. He loves to keep people bowed down under shame. He loves it, listen, he loves it when people can't get past their past. 
He loves it when you think, well, I can't, I can't go to church because of, of the, all the things I've done. I can't, I can't be serious about the Lord because of, of my past. And, and, and Satan loves to keep people weighed down with shame. And that's one of the effects of sin. It brings shame because we know that we've done something that is wrong. Shame. Number two, the aftermath of sin, separation. Look in verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Why are they hiding? Because they knew they had done something wrong. And they knew that God was God, and he had made these commandments, and he was their creator. And they knew that disobedience didn't line up well with a relationship with the creator. And so now, when they hear the creator coming into the garden, they're trying to hide. Sin brings separation from God. He's holy and perfect, and we know that we can't be in the presence. We can't have a relationship with a holy, perfect God with unforgiven sin in our life. The separation we see here in the Garden of Eden is the separation every sinner experiences. Sin brings separation. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says that our iniquities have made a separation between us and God. Sin separates And that's what they're experiencing here. Look what it says in verse 9. The Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And so we see here they are dealing with this this shame and this guilt and and this understanding they were disobedient and they, they don't want to be near God. They want to be separate from God. The third thing is blame. Blame. Look in verse 11. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And look what the man says. The woman, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. So the Lord looks to the woman. He said, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent, he deceived me and I ate. They're just shifting blame, right? Not taking responsibility for their personal sin. And you say that all the time in our culture today, don't you? People shifting blame for some, something they've done wrong. Now listen to me. I want you to hear me. This is so important. If you don't hear another word I say now, I want you to hear this. Satan tempted. Satan lured. Satan deceived. Satan distorted. Satan did not make Eve bite that fruit. She made that decision. And so Satan can tempt and he can mislead and he can lure, but you're the one that makes the decision whether or not to sin, whether or not to give in, right? And there's no place for shifting blame. We've got to understand we're guilty because if we don't understand we're guilty, we'll never seek to deal with our guilt. We'll just keep passing it off on someone else. But sin, the aftermath of sin, brought this this blame. Next, the aftermath of sin is fallen humanity. Fallen humanity. Look in verse 16. The Lord is addressing Eve here. And he says, To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. You shall, your desire shall be for your husband. He shall rule over you. So he mentions here pain. It be pain in childbirth. Something was about to go wrong physically with the human race. And from this point on, listen to me, from this point on, everyone who would be born of a man and a woman 
would be born with a sin nature. Humanity falls right here. Sin enters their life and would affect their, their children and their children's children and successive generations. Over in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, the Bible says that we are by nature children of wrath. You were born with a sin nature. And it goes all the way back to the corruption that entered the Garden of Eden through Adam and Eve. I was born with a sin nature. My kids, as much as I love them, were born with a sin nature. They need Jesus just like I need Jesus. Like we all need Jesus. We all need a Savior because we've all been born with a sin nature. And because of our sin nature, because we're corrupt on the inside, we sin. That's why the Bible says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's no perfect person in this room, no perfect person in this world. Who in here would not hang their head in shame if we put a replay of your life up on the big screen? Every word you've spoken, every thought you've thought, every wrong thing you've done, every evil act you've committed, every every deception, every bit of immorality, everything. What if we all got to watch that? Who would not hang their head in shame? We've all sinned because we've all got a sin nature. We are by nature children of wrath. Over in Psalm 51, David said, said that in sin he was conceived. He was conceived and he was conceived at the point of conception with a sin nature. He was born with a sin nature, brought into this world with a sin nature. And this is a, a empirically verifiable fact. For example, Did you have to teach your children how to lie or manipulate? Or did it just come naturally? I mean, there's never a time I sat my kids down and said, we're going to have a lesson today on deceiving mommy and daddy. So let's let's talk about how you do that. No, I have to teach them that. It, It comes naturally to them just like it came naturally to me when I was a little kid. And an older child and teenager and, you know, right? All of us. Because we have a sin nature. We don't have to be taught how to lie. We don't have to be taught how to be selfish. We don't have to be taught to manipulate others. It's who we are on the inside. We got a big problem, right? Sin separates us from God and we're all sinners because we all got a sin nature. We all need a Savior. And that what we see here is, is sin entering the human race through the disobedience of Adam and Eve. We see it happening physically. There will be physical pain now because of sin entering the human race. Have you ever wondered why in the book of Genesis you see people living 300, 500, 600, 700, 800, Methuselah, 900 plus years? you ever wondered why people don't live that long anymore? Because sin in the book of Genesis is just progressively affecting the human race. And you see lifespans getting shorter and shorter and shorter. That's why sin was infiltrating, spreading like gangrene through humanity and affecting us physically. This is why, again, I told you, Genesis has the big picture questions uh, answered. This is why there's cancer and diabetes and tuberculosis. And we could go on and on. That's why there's sickness and, and, and that's why there's death. Because of sin cursing humanity. And we're all infected with that curse. This is a result of the fall. This is the aftermath of sin. Fallen humanity. 
but also not only fallen humanity, but broken relationships. Look in verse 16 of Genesis 3. It says, your desire to Eve shall be for your husband. He shall rule over you. Now, scholars believe that phrase, your desire will be for your husband, is, is a desire to rule over the husband. So he's saying, in your marriage, Adam and Eve, you know, Adam's going to want to rule you, and you're going to want to rule him, and it's going to be chaos. And you know what we're going to see as we continue our study through Genesis? We're going to see absolute chaos in human relationships caused by sin. And you name it, Abraham, dysfunction. Isaac, dysfunction. Jacob, big-time dysfunction. I mean, the patriarchs, right? I mean, they did some crazy stuff. You think your family's got issues, read the book of Genesis. I mean, it's, it's, you won't believe some of the stuff we're about to study in Genesis. The, the dysfunction, which was a result of sin. Broken relationships. Humanity got so evil, we're going to see in a few chapters, that God decided just, just to flood the entire earth and, and, and kill everyone and start over. That's how bad it was. All a result of the fall. Fallen humanity, broken relationships. And, and, and think about this one. Fallen creation. Look in verse 17. To Adam, he said... Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. So here, God curses the creation. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So here's what God's saying to Adam. You're going to have to make your living out of the ground, and the ground's not going to cooperate. I've cursed the created order. So why do we have, you know, earthquakes that are eight on the Richter scale in Chile that cause tsunamis and death and mudslides in in the state of Washington. Why do, we have, why do we have hurricanes and F5 tornadoes that flatten communities? Because we live in a sin-cursed world. That's, that's why. This, this world has been cursed. It happened here at the fall. It is, it is a result, a consequence of sin entering the world through Adam and Eve. I was telling uh, someone down here at the front uh, before we got started that I went home for lunch today, and I got there, and there were wasps everywhere. Those big red wasps, and they were, they were building nests at probably four or five different places on my home. And so I went to the store, and I, I came back, you know, I had, I had a can of wasp spray in both hands, and I'd spray and run, and, and I, they were everywhere. I mean, I, I've never seen that many wasps on my house, and I was, of course, concerned about my kids, and, and, and so I was trying to kill the wasp, and you think, wait, why wasps? Why red wasps? They, they hurt, and they're, they're dangerous, and they're a nuisance. And why? The fall. This world is not cooperating with us. Have you noticed that? That's why you have to spray Roundup in your flower bed to kill weeds you don't want to grow. Then you have to spray fertilizer in your yard to get the grass to grow. It's not cooperating. This is a result of the fall. Now, just to kind of drive this home, and I think I talked about this last week, but I want, to, I want, to, I want you to really get this. Turn to Romans chapter 8. I want to show you that this is a reality. Because it really helps you to understand natural tragedy and disaster even better. Romans chapter 8. 
verse 19, Paul writes, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. In other words, the creation's waiting for God to come back and set everything right. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been grown together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Here's, here's what Paul's writing. When sin entered the world, God cursed the ground. But one day he's going to He's going to restore everything. He's going to make everything brand new and better and wonderful and deal with the effects of the fall. But right now, creation is groaning. Tornadoes, hurricanes, drought, blizzards. Creation is groaning because it's been cursed. But the hope that Paul points us to in Romans chapter 8 is one day God's going to come back and make it all right. He's going to make everything new. I can't wait for that day. Amen? But that's the result of the fall. That's why we have all of this. And so, what are, the, what are the different things that happen after the sin of Adam and Eve? Shame, separation, blame, fallen humanity, broken relationships, fallen creation. Everything was now a big mess. See what sin does? And this is not just Adam and Eve's story. This is your story and my story. Sin has done this in our life too, hasn't it? Sin destroys So here's the big question. How do we fix it? How do we fix it? Everywhere you look, you see the effects of sin. How do we fix it? Now, there are many different answers to that question. As a matter of fact, if you study different world religions or cults, they're trying to answer that question, how we fix the problem. And some of them would disagree on what the problem is, but they know something's wrong. And everyone's trying to figure out how you fix this mess that we're all living in. That we're experiencing because we live in a sin-cursed world and we, and we are around sin-cursed people. And we're experiencing because we're sinners ourselves and we've caused a lot of the problem. How do we fix it? Here's a quick answer. We don't. And let me say it even more clearly. We can't fix it. That's the problem with, uh, with the world religions. They all teach, you've got to do something if you want God to accept you. If you want to make it to God or have a relationship with God or whatever their concept is, you've got to do the right stuff. And if you do the right stuff, you can fix it. But the reality is, we can't fix it. The reality is, we need some help. The reality is we need a rescuer. We need a redeemer. We need a savior who can deal with our deepest issue, which is sin. And so what did God do? How's he going to fix it? Guess what? The answer starts in Genesis chapter 3. It's amazing. You, can't, you won't believe what we're about to study about God's remedy, God's cure for our sin. First of all, think about this. God is the only one that can forgive us of sin and redeem us from sin's effects. He's the only one that can do it. We can't do it ourselves. God's got to do it. Can't save ourselves. The Bible says that that no one, listen, no one will be made righteous by the works of the law. It, It doesn't matter how many good things you do. 
You've still been ruined by sin. You've still committed sin. You've rebelled against God. And the sin has to be dealt with if you're going to have a relationship with God. Let me illustrate that quickly. Let's just say that that on Judgment Day you're standing before God. And in one hand you have all the good things you've done. You know, going down on Thanksgiving and feeding folks in the homeless shelter. Going to church. Um. Helping someone out on the side of the road that had a flat. You know, all the good things you've done. Taking care of your family. Working hard. In this hand, you have all your sins. The lies, the deception, the immorality, all of that. And see, a lot of people think they're going to stand before God on that day and say, God, look at all my good stuff. Let me into heaven. And God's going to say, well, what's in that other hand? Well, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. Just look at the good stuff. And in their other hand, they're holding all their sin that has not been forgiven. Listen to me. No one will go into the presence of God with unforgiven sin. No matter how many good things you think you've done. Some people think, well, if my good just outweighs my bad, then God will let me in. No, the sin has to be dealt with. And by the way, your good will never outweigh your bad, trust me. And so what did God do to deal with our deepest issue, with our sin? Well, first of all, listen to this. God seeks while we hide. God seeks while we hide. In verses 8 and 9, who's hiding? Who's hiding? Who's calling out for them? God. God, listen to me, God is the one initiating reconciliation with Adam and Eve. Their sin had caused separation and alienation and shame and guilt. But God here is initiating finding them so he can do something about their sin. And that's your story and my story as well. Because no one has ever been saved without God initiating his work in their life. But I don't believe that. The Bible says in Romans 3, there's none righteous, no, not one. And not only that, there's none that seek after God. None. None that seek after God. And, and Jesus said it like this over in John chapter 6, verse 44. Jesus said, no man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. For you to embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior, God had to squeeze your heart and draw you first and show you how much you needed a Savior. The reason I was saved when I was nine years old is because God began to do a work in my heart before I even began to think about my need for him. He squeezed my heart, showed me I was a sinner. I heard the the glorious gospel, the good news about Jesus and what he had done for me. At nine years of age, because God was drawing me, I responded and and I called on his name and I was saved. But God initiated that. As a sinner, I would have been fine just hiding under my guilt and my shame. But aren't you glad that God comes seeking? Aren't Listen. Aren't you glad that, I know know what I'm about to say, and it's awesome. So just listen, you ready? I'm I'm getting excited about what I'm about to say. You ready? Aren't you glad that when you weren't looking for God, He was looking for you? I like how that came out. Write that down. Aren't you glad that when you weren't looking for God, 
God came looking for you. God initiated his work in your life. That is good stuff. Then we see it here in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve had blown it. They were hiding, but God came calling out their name. God seeks while we hide. And that's all of our stories, if we know Christ. Number three, we see God's cure for sin immediately in the story. So, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, God had a, a plan in place because his plan, listen to me, was formulated and, and put in place before creation ever happened. God knew they were going to sin. God knew they would need a savior. God knew they would need a rescuer. So look at God's rescue plan. Look at God's cure here in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. The Lord here is addressing The serpent, the Lord God said to the serpent, Satan, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So because Satan chose to come in the form of a serpent, God cursed serpents. And snakes everywhere are saying, Satan, couldn't you have chosen something else? Couldn't you have chosen another animal? We wouldn't have to slither on our belly, but anyway. But that's why God cursed serpents. Then in verse 15, he says, I will put, talking to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This verse, Genesis 3.15, is the first mention of Jesus in the Bible. Scholars call it the proto-evangelium, which means the first gospel. This is the first gospel account in the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, and it comes right after the fall. Don't you love, right after the fall, God has a plan of rescue in place, a plan of of salvation in place. So wait, what is this plan? How's God going to deal with our sin? How's God going to rescue us? Three words, ready? First of all, the incarnation. The incarnation. He says, I will put enmity, talking to Satan, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Now, the offspring of Satan speaks of all those who, who follow him, who live in evil, who rebel against God, who are enemies of the cross. You remember over in John chapter 8 that Jesus said to the religious leaders, he said, your father is Satan. You're following him, not God. But who's it talking about when it says her offspring? God is saying that, that somewhere down the line, a woman's going to give birth. And that's going to that's mean your demise, Satan. That's going to mean your demise. This is a reference thousands of years before Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem to the Incarnation. There would be a woman who would give birth and her seed would do major damage, mortal damage to Satan. And you know the story we celebrated every year at Christmas? That Jesus Christ, who's existed from, from eternity past was in heaven, enjoying unceasing worship, unceasing adoration, and he left the splendor and glory of heaven, and he came to this earth born of a virgin. The Holy Spirit formed the baby Jesus in the womb of Mary, so that when Jesus Christ was born, he was fully human, born of the Virgin Mary, but fully God, conceived by the Holy Spirit. 100% God, 100% man, the only one who could do anything about our sin. The incarnation. God was going to do something about our sin through the seed of a woman. Specifically, the Virgin Mary. Here's the second word. The crucifixion. The incarnation, the crucifixion. Look what it says in verse 15. It says, he shall bruise your head. In other words, the 
the blow that you're going to receive from the seed of the woman, who we know now is Jesus Christ, he's going to do, a, he's going to do mortal damage to you. A, a head blow is a mortal blow, right? But look what he says. And you shall bruise his heel. In other words, you're going to hurt him too, but it's not going to be the same kind of hurt. His hurt on you is going to mean the end of you, but you're going to hurt him for a time. I believe this speaks of the pain and the suffering of the betrayal, arrest, beating, humiliation, suffering, crucifixion of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ was hanging there on the cross from 9 in the morning to 3 in the afternoon, innocent, never having committed any sin, but hanging there for our sins, taking all of our sin on himself, paying the the penalty that you and I deserve to pay. When he was on the cross, Satan was, was bruising his heel. It speaks of the crucifixion. Jesus, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, died for our sins. And in the cross, listen to me, we see the supreme demonstration of the love of God for us. Listen to it, Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You say, God doesn't love me. You have that shame weighing you down, Satan's whispering in your ear. God doesn't love me. The cross says, God loves you. He proved it by dying for you and dying for me. God loves us. The crucifixion speaks to that. There's a third, a third word I want you to see. The, the incarnation, the, the crucifixion, but third, the resurrection. The resurrection. It says there, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. In other words, your bruising will not be final, it will not be the end. He's going to recover from the bruising, he's going to recover from his death on the cross. He would, the Bible teaches us, rise from the grave. And if the cross is the supreme demonstration of the love of God, the empty tomb is the supreme demonstration of the power of God. He defeated death itself, right? And because he defeated death, he defeated death, he can give you eternal life. So thousands of years before Jesus ever walked on the earth, there's this prophecy here that one would come born of a woman that would crush Satan, that would crush him with a mortal blow, which speaks of the crucifixion and the resurrection. Because, listen to me, now that Jesus has died for our sins and now that Jesus has risen from the dead, what can Satan do to us? Once you embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're forgiven, you're saved. Your sins have been washed away. You're in his hand. And Satan, the Bible says in John 10, cannot snatch you out of God's hand, right? Satan loses because Jesus died on the cross for our sins and defeated death itself and gives us eternal life. Now, look there in your notes as we think about this this first gospel, this proto-evangelium. Jesus is the only cure for sin. Because Jesus is the God-man, fully man, and he took your punishment in your place. Because he's fully God, he paid the infinite debt that you and I could not pay. He alone is the only way to deal with your sin. And all the other world religions and cults have their formulas and their their tenets and their works-based theology. 
but none of them deal with your sin. Only Jesus can forgive you of your sin. And Jesus said it like this, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the only way to be saved. He's the only way to deal with that sin in your hand. Because when you turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ, He forgives you of all of it and washes all away. And There's no longer any barrier between you and God. Let me give you a couple more thoughts and we'll be through. We must place our faith in God's Redeemer. Knowing all of that about Jesus, that He came to earth, born of the Virgin Mary, He died for our sins, He rose from the dead, none of that saves you. Knowing, knowing those facts doesn't save you. You've got to do something about it. You've got to place your faith in what God was going to do. And, and, and Adam does that. Look in Genesis 3 with me. Genesis 3, verse 20. Quick question. Everybody look at me for a moment. Have you noticed through the narrative of chapter 3 that Eve is called the woman? Have you noticed that? The woman, the woman, the woman, the woman. We don't see the name Eve until verse 20. Look what it says. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. The word Eve, the name Eve means life giver. And so what scholars believe is happening here is Adam believes God. He's taking him at his word. We're going to have some children and we'll have some children and more children and children's children and descendants and all of that. And one day through a woman, some woman down the line, you're going to send someone through her seed that's going to do all this to Satan. Adam buys into what God's saying. He's placing his faith in God's future redeemer that he was going to send. By the way, how did folks get saved in the Old Testament before the cross? They got saved by looking forward to what God was going to do. When he sent a redeemer. We get saved by looking back at what God has done through Jesus Christ. Amen. But it's all, you're all saved by grace. You're all saved by faith in, in, in what Jesus did at the cross. Some look forward. Some look back. And, and, and Adam here is looking forward. I believe I'll see Adam in heaven. This, this naming Eve life giver is, a, is an, an act of faith. In what God had said. In God's work. In God's plan. Listen to what R. Kent Hughes writes. He writes, Adam named his wife life or life giver because she would become the mother of all the living adam was able to do this because he had a very precise awareness of the overall significance of god's words to his wife adam had to listen closely to god's speech to his spouse he understood that one of her offspring would crush the head of the snake he knew that his wife's pain in childbearing meant that a people would follow Indeed, the tense Adam used to declare his faith is the prophetic perfect, indicating that her becoming the mother of all the living is as good as done. Adam's declaration was an overwhelming shout of hope. The name Eve celebrates the survival of the human race and victory over death. And so, by Adam naming his wife Eve, he is demonstrating his faith in what God had said in Genesis 3.15. Here's the last thing I want to leave you with. Well, let me just say this. Knowing God's story, knowing the gospel doesn't save you. All that I shared about the, the, the incarnation, the crucifixion, resurrection, a lot of people believe that, but they're going to hell. They're heading to hell because they've never personally appropriated what Jesus Christ has done for them. They think just knowing that or being a member of a church or being a part of a, a particular denomination saves. That doesn't save you. Only Jesus saves you. 
the Bible says we've got to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead and we will be saved. You've got to call on his name. You've got to see your need for Jesus and call on his name, right? Repentance and faith. Call on his name. That, that's how you're saved. You, you say, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. Jesus, would you save me? Would you come into my life and, and, and be my Lord, be my boss, be my master? I want to follow you. That's what saving faith is. trying to think if I want to say what I'm about to say. I'll, I'll just leave that for now. But you've got to respond to what Jesus Christ has done for you. Amen? Personally respond. Now, before we finish, there's one just little picture here that, that, that helps us understand salvation. And it's beautiful. Look what happens in verse 21. Adam names his wife Eve, mother of all living, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So they made their own garments of fig leaves to cover themselves. But here, God does the covering for them. And notice what happens. An animal has to die to provide covering for their shame. An innocent animal had to die. To provide covering for their shame. Blood had to be shed. For there to be a covering for their shame. I believe this is just a little picture in Genesis chapter 3. Of God's grace covering sinners. Because just like this animal had to die. And his blood had to be shed. For Adam and Eve to be covered. Jesus Christ the sinless lamb of God. Had to shed his own blood for you and for me. And when we embrace him as our Lord and Savior, he covers our sin. He covers our shame. He forgives us and makes us brand new. Isn't that awesome? Just a little neat picture there in the book of Genesis. Now, we'll, get, we'll do the end of chapter 3 next week. There's a lot there in chapter 3 going into chapter 4. But I hope you've seen that our problem is sin. And it all goes back to the Garden of Eden. It all goes back to Adam and Eve. And I hope you've seen that you can't fix your problem. I can't fix my problem. The only fix is Jesus. And what God has done through his son.